God, we are so blessed to be able to come fellowship together, to see new babies, to see old friends, Lord. And yet the highlight of today is the ability to worship you. I pray that today from Sunday school to the end of member meeting is a time of clear worship and adoration to you. I pray it's all a sweet incense to you, that it is a sweet sound to your ear, Lord. I pray that this Sunday school is a fruitful lesson that allows us to better operate within the world that applies pressure to us and figure out how to navigate um, challenging changes of sin around us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to warn you, the mic probably needs to be passed once. There's not a lot of scripture in this either, so none of this is my preferred approach to Sunday school. I've already been told I'm a disappointment because I don't have a whiteboard. Um, so uh, I know, I know. And even worse, I've acknowledged it on the recording for my dad to hear. So, um, but today's going to be actually a really helpful thought exercise. We're going to be able to go through a progression and see how we get from where we were for the past three classes to uh, from the identity of self and how people are internally coming to an identity to how is, how is someone somewhere else and their view of themselves impacting the church, impacting others? How is it going out and applying pressure, both politically and, and generally speaking, why is there pressure on others from the identity of self? And, um, and so we're going to go through that. In review, though, uh, past three weeks, we've looked at the progression of ideas and their consequences. A lot of people's names were thrown out. Latin was said. Um, but if we consider Sodom and Gomorrah, we know that sinful distortion of sex is nothing new. But it's these philosophers, Descartes, Rousseau, who created public discourse on the uh, importance of personal thought and feelings. So my, my internal thoughts are my identity. The source of identity is internal. But then philosophers such as Mark and Nietzsche have, Nietzsche have claimed the need to resist external forces of identity, such as religion. So we see these, these pressures fighting against each other, these forces fighting against each other of where does my identity come from? It's internal. And we also need to shut down external. Um, Marx uh, went on to say that religion is a crutch. Nietzsche is the one who says God is dead and we need to end religion. Um, and, um, and so needless to say, these things have grown into full-fledged blossom into full-fledged sin um, uh, in ways that we just maybe didn't recognize. But the combination of these ideas enter the genre we're talking about, which is sex, and sex as part of your identity with Freud. So Sigmund Freud is the one who really popularizes this idea that sex is foundational to who you are. Your sexual feelings, your passions, your desires, that is foundational to who you are. And so when your identity comes in from internally and you sexual passion, you have sexual passions that are opposed to that which God has designed or outside of the confines that God has designed, it creates this identity clash with what God has called us to have an identity of. So for what we're getting into today is how does that identity manifest itself outside of the internal and the individual? So we're going to actually start off with some more philosophical questions. The book as a whole is very philosophical, but uh, the question is going to be, what is a person? What is a person? So if I were to ask you, who are you, how would you respond to that? 
Who are you? I doubt you would start giving me lines of genetic code or describe maybe even your physical characteristics most likely. Um, instead, I would imagine you would start to reference things like people, events. I know if someone asked me here at church, I typically, for context, associate myself with other people. Pastor Pete's my dad. Oh, Daryl's my grandpa, depending on how you know people at church. Um, but who I am as a person, when I, someone asks me who are you, is oftentimes defined by things like work and social life, marriage, kids, those types of things, which are social things around us. So then, if a person is more, or the idea of being a person in an identity is more than just genetic code and, and biological things, um, what is it, what, what actually makes us, what actually makes us people? And Truman puts it, to ask who I am is not to demand to know what makes me biologically distinct from a, any other human being, but to ask about my life and about the people, places, actions, and events that have shaped my sense of identity. So I think a good um, exercise to kind of see how much these social communities around you impact your sense of identity as well um, is to think about being born in somewhere in Europe in a different era. Would you, would you answer who are you the same way? Likely not. Likely not. So then if this identity has a social, there are external forces and we have social impact on it, um, we see that we still like to think that identity in some level can be controlled by us. So to some extent, our, our personal experience, we have control over. We, we make decisions. To some level, I chose my wife. I chose to have kids, right? Um, I choose where to work, where to go to school, where to live, all of those items. And so through those extents and interactions, we are choosing some of our social interactions. So, um, a good example, I think if anyone's ever read the book uh, Atomic Habits by James Clear, it's a good you know, self-help book um, on habits. One of the things he, he posits is that um, a big part of your identity is you have to change in your mind your identity before changing a habit. So to change a habit, you need to change your, your identity. So the example he gives is, if if you're a cigarette smoker and you're trying to quit, that's the habit you're trying to quit, well, one of the steps you should do is when talking to someone else and they talk about you, you don't say, I'm a cigarette smoker, but I'm trying to quit. You say, I'm not a cigarette smoker. I don't, even though, historically speaking, you have. And it's this idea that we can choose or it has impact on our actions if we dictate what our persona is, what our identity is. And so um, we see this in the world where the idea of if I believe that I am a certain thing, then I am that thing. So identity, though, is not, it's not as simple as a monologue as just being an individual. Um, and I think we're, I want to give us some examples. Hopefully this will be our chance to have the microphone go around a little bit. So um, I would love to get an example of, let's look first as identity as a monologue or as a I choose can someone uh, share, does someone want to share an example from personal experience of when maybe there was some aspect of their life that they wanted to change, they wanted a different identity? It could be outside of the context of church. It might be 
you know, I was a Lakers fan, I wanted to be better. So I chose the Suns, I chose the Suns. I started attending, right? So whatever it might be, does anyone want to share an example of when they felt like their identity in some way changed as a result of some choice in life? So I, um, in school, I was not one of the popular kids. And one of the things that, and I'm not funny, so I can appreciate <laughs> funny, but I'm not funny. And so the only thing that I felt was left to me is to be sarcastic. Mm. And I was very good at that. And I got to the point where I realized that the cost was really high on relationships and trust because even friends don't really know if you're kidding or if you're just taking a swipe at them under the guise of being funny. And I made the decision to choose not to engage in any kind of sarcasm because it was becoming too destructive to myself and it was destructive around me. And so I very seldom will ever use sarcasm anymore. And if I catch myself, I try to um, apologize and move off of that right away. Wonderful, thank you for sharing that. I would also say uh, in the past minute there, you have proved how you are a popular person and a funny person. I think most of the room laughed when you said you're not a funny person. So, um, but absolutely, I, I think that's a wonderful example of changing your identity for the better. You knew you had, you were perceived a certain way or you were acting in a certain way that was part of your identity for humor or, or per, perhaps a way to socially interact and you changed it. Any other examples of a time someone changed their perceived identity? All right, so then we're gonna get into the, what I think are the more fun things I'm hoping to ask you about, which is identity is not just a monologue, right? It is more than just a, um, it, it is not as simple as I get to choose the constructs around me. I get to choose the interactions, the events and places around me. It's not that simple. It's a lot more complex than that. Um, consider a teenager. So uh, I, the author goes into an example about a teenager in his day. The author's day was different than my day. So um, I didn't fully resonate with what he was saying, but I can tell you I live right next to a high school and I drive past it every day. And the quickest way to get me to grumpy, grouchy, complaining about people is seeing the way girls dress, high school girls dress. I get terror over my daughter and I'm just like, why are girls dressing this way? I, you know, my wife just at this point knows the modesty conversations coming. And, um, and I think the day that I was just baffled the most, I pulled into a drive-through at a fast food place and I'm looking at, uh, it's a sonic drive-in, so they have outdoor seating and outside there's 15 girls sitting there and they are all wearing the same thing. Like it looks like a uniform, but it's not. It's just different enough. It's clearly it's not, and it's not appropriate enough to be any kind of like school imposed uniform. And, um, and so them in, in some form of rebellion or identity in the social group have chosen to conform with others, whether or not they liked that originally, they decided to conform even though they might 
perhaps be rebelling, let's say, against their parents or against the, the expectations that have been placed on them. So even in, say, rebellion, we might see conformity. And this is where even though you might choose your group, I am choosing to be with these friends, you still see others are imposing in some way structure and identity on you in some of your social interactions and, and experiences. So I, I would love to hear an example of someone who at some point was rebellious uh, in school, right? In some way you thought, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be with these friends or this group. Does anyone have a, an example for us of like a group of friends or in some way basically thinking I can kinda show I'm different than my parents, perhaps with another group of people or a group of friends? I'm going to call on you, Dennis. You were leaning and whispering, so. Not that rebellion's written all over you, but. What was that? Oh, man, you're going to make me go into personal examples. Okay. Okay, so for me, uh, for me, it's been a lot of aspects. I would say sports is the most easy is the most easy one, right? Like, you rebel. Maybe maybe it wasn't from my parents because my parents were involved in sports a lot. But in general, I had a view on people who played instruments, marching band. You know, these guys. Like, my brother is in marching band, and I would prefer my identity to be that of a of a athlete, right? I'm a jock. I'm a cool guy, um, and so. It, up to me, a significant part of my identity is the way I dress. Now I wear the same flip-flops with, with socks that everyone else does, the mandals, and I carry a duffel bag with me, basketball stuff everywhere. Like, there's a uniform that's even the off-the-court uniform for being on the basketball team, right? And everyone sits there, and the moment one person starts wearing a certain type of pull-away pants, next thing you know, boom, boom, boom. Every kid's got to have it. That was me for a long time because my identity I wanted to choose was not that of marching band or of these other things. No, I'm, you know, I'm the upper crust. I'm an athlete is what I had decided myself to be. But even in choosing that, I went into this identity that was chosen for me. I mean, I still don't know if I like those flip-flops or not, but I wore them. So, uh, uh, Gary, it looks like you maybe have an example here, though. Well, I have a, a question for you. Okay. Uh, when you were at that high school age level, mm-hmm. did you find the dress that the girls were wearing as obnoxious then as you do now? I'm not a, probably a great source of that. Homeschool, kindergarten through high school. And... Um, so my only exposure to girls so, were them practicing so you, on the girls' you basketball You saw what court. your mom wore, right? Yeah, like, I, yeah, I, I, I found my mom's attire was appropriate. I, either that or I'd get called in the principal's office if I thought otherwise. But um, I'm yes, not going I, there, buddy. I, 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 I would say there is a general uh, devolving of, of modesty. Or I, I, then again, there's nothing new under the sun. So I would say, um, yes, they're... they're in my experience, maybe since I started noticing, that I would say that apparent apparel being worn ex- outside and publicly is more broadly adopted, let's say, maybe, um, especially maybe with the rise of things like Instagram and ways to influence. Well, I guess my point is my attitude has changed as I age. Mm. And that when I was a, a teenager, their girls could wear anything they wanted to. It was okay with me at that mm. point. But... 
as I age, certainly I have some restrictions, more restrictions. I have, I have your restrictions. <laughs> I hope. Uh, hopefully we have scriptures restrictions and I would say uh, yes I can resonate with that uh, I would say more more than age perhaps it's the four foster daughters and my own biological daughter that's probably put me in terror and knowing the sinfulness of my own mind and heart um, but um, absolutely so in in our purpose here is that even when even when we seek to say we're not a part of something, whether it's the identity of our parents, the identity of another group, we are not this, you seek it with another group. You end up getting structure put around you and sources of identity pushed on you by, a, by the group in which you wish to conform to. So um, even though we as human beings may say we want to be free, it's not all of our identity is not as free to choose, choose as perhaps we might think. Uh, uh, I think ultimately it comes down to the desire of wanting to feel valued. The author talks about how the value of being recognized by others and having others acknowledge you as part of the group is significant. And we see this, you know, we're talking on a, maybe a high school level, but we see this with society as a whole, right? We see this with um, bipartisanship politically. You, you need to conform to the structure and standards and expectations of one party versus another party. You need to conform to certain things to belong to this group. And it happens a lot. And, and some for better and for worse. We'll see how that actually looks. That happens in the church for the better. And we'll look at that in a moment. But within these constructs, the desires are in these communities that people choose to associate themselves with. They desire recognition. The desire for recognition is there. Um, so by recognition... Truman says, the kind of recognition that is given to us in the act of belonging to a community by having our identity as part of that community recognized. So the example he gives, uh, I think is very applicable. If anyone in school has ever been picked first or last for a sport, you know how that feels. When you're picked first, it's, you know, it's like your chest puffs up, like, yeah, you know, I'm good at this. Someone picked me first. And if your pick's last, there's this feeling of shame, embarrassment, like someone's taking me because I'm the last available body, not because they want me. And that sense of recognition that comes with being selected one place or the other, it's significant. And it speaks to, in some way, your identity. So if you're associated as part of your community is this schoolyard that is picking you for basketball, dodgeball, whatever, and you're picked last, that lack of recognition is painful. And the recognition of being identified as, yes, you're one of us, you're, you're, you have all these skills we desire, is valuable. It feels good. And so when we apply this more broadly, we can start to see how society giving recognition is a key sense to community and belonging. But groups have fame, frameworks for recognition. To be recognized by a community or group, you have to adhere to that particular group. You have to adhere to the social norms or the expectations. At, here at RRBC, we're Christians. We're Reformed Baptist, and we hold the London Baptist Confession of 1689. To be a member here and recognized by the church, those criteria need to be met. So we ourselves create rules for recognition within the church. We're going to have a member meeting later. Anyone's free to attend. But if you want to vote, if you're a part of the community that gets to vote, you have to be 
meet this criteria, be above 18, right? Um, so the, there's rules for recognition within any given community and society. So um, when you think about this on a national level, so each society, community, nation state, they have certain rules. Some of them are spoken, some are not, and they're required for recognition. And the lack of recognition is naturally painful and demeaning, and, and that might be seen in the case of being picked last, maybe um, uh, on, a, on a church level, excommunication. You're, it's painful and demeaning to be put outside of the church, right? It's out of love, but it's, no one wants that. There is a social component to it. So then within these communities, as we start to think about like, these communities around us and trying to be recognized and get the feelings of being recognized being a positive thing and, and avoiding not the lack of recognition, we start to think about the communities themselves. So we're gonna step away from thinking about recognition for a moment and think about what are the communities actually around us. And, um, and then at the end, we're gonna put them together. When you want recognition and you understand the communities. So <clears throat> the way the author puts it is that communities are imaginary. So the community of the United States of America is an imaginary community. Community of, a, of our church is an imaginary community to an extent. It's a poorer example, but the idea of communities are imaginary. They're rooted, not in that they don't exist, but that they are rooted in a way of thinking. So uh, think about national identity. Um, I've lived my whole life closer to Mexico than I have to the East Coast. Florida, Maine, all of that, closer than to Washington. And yet I more so identify my community with people who I have zero interaction with in, in other places. For those of you who have served in the military, the idea of this theoretical community, of a connection and belonging to people you don't know, have pushed you to a point where you're willing to go fight and even die for this idea, for this community, this connection. And groups push, continue to push, the connectedness of their identity as a community. So think about if, if we're talking about, um, if we're talking about America, think about um, national anthem, holidays, right? These are things to reinforce these narratives that make communities that are rooted in imagination, not the imagination, but rooted in imagination in the sense of thought process and communal thought process. When we think about, uh, here, let me actually real quick read out of page 118 here, out of the book. The American national anthem and the calendar, marking those dates in the nation's history that defines its identity, Thanksgiving, the 4th of July, Veterans Day, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, all serve to press the power of the national narrative onto the pop population. These national narratives provide the basis for patriotism the commitment to a national cause. It's a cause that motivated men to sign up for the army in the First and Second World War. And he goes on further to talk more about how these narratives for these communities cause people to take action. So there is true belonging in the idea of these communities, in these communities and the, these um, groups, but this is where things actually get messy. What happens when the traditional narratives that hold a community together are challenged? So um, I'm sure there's some American examples coming to mind. We'll hit some of that a bit in a second. 
But let's look at the idea of the Reformation. The narrative is the Catholic Church. That's the narrative. That is part of your identity. There are not a lot of options when it comes to religion. It is part of the community. It is part of the identity of of a community and region and a government. And here comes in the Reformation, and they challenge the narrative that holds and binds a group of people together. And for the better, right? It puts, as Truman puts it, it puts the individual at the center rather than the Catholic Church for them to make a decision on what to believe for them to read their scripture, for them to make decisions along the way. And in that, we see fragmenting, right? We see further fracturing. We see groups form into smaller groups instead of just the one Roman Catholic church. And we've seen that now in America where some of the traditional methods of or traditional narratives are being challenged nationally. It causes fracturing. It causes essentially sub-communities to start to create. Specifically, if you think about, um, if you think about the advancement of the internet, um, the, the way the author put it, he, he said when he was growing up, there was three channels on TV. One, uh, there was essentially one news channel, and that was the source of the narratives, was one news channel. Whereas now, uh, you know, I don't watch news on TV at all. I pretty much try to avoid anything with a commercial associated with it. And here, here other people, though, would have had a communal, countrywide experience with one news anchor or one, um, one news station or storyline or narrative being pushed on them. And that's where, for us today, we can, with the rise of the internet and social media, we can find the communities and the narratives that we agree with and identify with. But that doesn't remove some of the community and the narrative of the, con- of the whole. So again, if we think about America, if you're challenging historical traditional values, and now within the context of America, you have people who say, I am American, but I disagree with those values, we start to have a problem. This is where we start to get conflict. And why? We'll see in a moment how the progression from an individual's identity becomes an issue for others. Others being the church, others being Christians, others being uh, a country as a whole. So let's put, let's put these pieces together. Um, so uh, if we put together the freedom to choose an identity, the ability to create a community around that identity, any identity. So like if you, my favorite social media method, if you go look at where I interact, I interact with Suns fans, reformed folks, and, um, and then usually like Arizona-based people. Like that's, those are the communities I identify with at least so far through social media. Um, and if you, so the ability to create a community around any one thing, whether it's as, as silly as a sport or a sport team or something more ideological. Um, and then the ability to um, get the benefit of recognition. If I'm near another Suns fan and they're, they see my jersey that I'm wearing, and they see that, oh, that's an old jersey. Like, you got to be a deep fan to know to have that guy on your back. You get recognition. It feels good. You're a part of the club, right? And you can get this within your specific sub-communities. And then from there, after the benefit of recognition, there's still the pain of lack of recognition that we get, and so we get conflict and pressure. So if, so if we think about this, if sex is a major part of someone's identity, and you have other communities that recognize you. You have these sub-communities. We are a group together. 
but then you're a part of a broader community that does not recognize your identity, and so it causes pain, discomfort, it's demeaning. We see pressure. This is where we get a pressure built. A pressure to force their, the acceptance and public acknowledgement and recognition of your identity. It must be recognized. It needs to be recognized. And we see this pressure on national levels, certainly when we see bills or national narratives, but we also see it on regional and church levels. Churches are feeling the pressure of you need to recognize. Think about, think about churches that are accepting homosexuality as an acceptable practice. Most of them, or many of them, do not just stop at saying, yeah, we accept that. They broadly proclaim acceptance somewhere on their sign outdoors, right? There's a rainbow flag, there's something that is trying to communicate, we recognize you, you're recognized, your identity is recognized here. And so churches are absolutely under this pressure. So if we're seeing this, if we're seeing this progression and we're seeing the identity, the idea of the identity at home, now needs to be recognized by others and I need to force my identity being recognized by others. This is where we start to get interaction with us as the church, us as the church. So when we get into the next future chapters, the next few chapters where we start to get into things, um, into some other of these more specific topics, you'll see why this is, this is not as simple as saying, well, they choose to sin, but they choose to sin in a lot of ways. This doesn't really impact me. The reality is that it does. On some level, there, is a, there are people wanting their identity that they've chosen, not an identity acknowledged to be from God, and forced upon either a church, the workplace, whatever it might be. So at this point, now we get our, our chance for discussion. Uh, we got about 10 minutes. Um, uh, let's open it up. Any comments, questions? We got a hand up. Brandon? Oh, Robert. So you're saying when you and another Suns fan see each other that your reaction really at its, at its uh, essence is imaginary? No, so, so <laughs> it's not. The, the championships I think we have are imaginary, um, but... Uh... <laughs> um, so when it comes to identity and... I, and trying to not be something, you then be something and are conformed to a group as a result of your nonconformance to another group. Mm -hmm. And those two exist and there's a, a pressure and there's a, there's a pain that's going on, Absolutely. if I'm understanding yes, correctly. Yes, that's correct. Right. Yeah. And so it sounds like this is coming back to then as a, as a, as a church living in the world, how does this pressure impact us, right? And I keep coming back to the impact to us is sacrificial because there's an ultimate identity that's not imaginary. You know, when Jesus says that my kingdom is not of this world, and when he comes again, there will be an outward pressure on the entire world where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. There'll be an outward pressure on every single person, whether they like it or not, to confess the truth. And there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth for some. 
as they continue to not conform to this outward pressure. So I think it's tempting to get caught in the moment of us and them and this particular pressure and how it impacts us personally and perhaps standing up for ourselves, which isn't necessarily wrong. But in the big picture, there's an end result where this very thing is going to happen and the ultimate power and the ultimate glory is going to reign and all are going to acknowledge it. And in the middle of this temporary affliction, sacrificially, I have to look at someone who is in danger of that day and have compassion for them. Certainly. And to endure that perhaps their false view, which is imaginary, may come to repentance and faith that they may be saved. Yeah. I completely agree with that, and I, I think the example of the real pressure and the, the second coming of Christ, we see, in my perspective, a, a model of that in the idea of church discipline and excommunications. There is an, a real pressure to come back to the conformity of what Scripture lines out as the commandments for us to behave. Um, so, absolutely. And I would say, w- with all of these things, my hope is that we're communicating not all of these things in and of themselves are bad, necessarily. Communities, like this community, is my identity in a huge part, this church. Um, but obviously we have a greater identity in the invisible church and the, the community therein. And um, I appreciate the gentleness, too, with which you approach how to interact with those who our identities are different as well. Thank you. So I was just making an observation of how like important it was that the author started with talking about like Marx and others like him because Marxism is I think a good way to summarize it is like very much is connected with darwinism and might makes right and everything is just different levels of power so you determine what's good and what's evil based on like where the power is and that is so you know Marx and Kant and some of the other persons mentioned these last couple weeks they did have this emphasis on like individual what do you feel like how you feel is how you determine truth but then they also this connects to how they try to establish that truth um, because they, Marxism is, you know, when you look at it from a government perspective of like, how is the LGBTQ whatever community trying to force upon us their view? Well, they're going for what one of their idols is, which is the government, and they try to use it as a tool to force their worldview on us. So, like, there you see things like, the Obama during the Obama administration making like gay marriage available and you know they go straight to the government as their community's power um, and make like an idol out of the government. Yeah, I, I would argue uh, probably goes both ways too. Um, uh, my dad and I have frequently commented on our dismay at seeing the American flag right next to the pulpit. You go into a church. Why is an American flag standing right next to the pulpit? Um, and elements of this idea of 
I'm sure we've all had interactions with people who are, feel will speak with more vehemence about political things in, in a national perspective than they will about the gospel and about Christ. And so um, I would say this is where we, I, I, I do think you're right. I think people you are using their tools and then Mar Marxism specifically, the idea there is that you're destroying systems and rebuilding them in the way that they, you believe they should be. Um, and in this case, maybe it's the LGBTQ um, community, which is um, that topic as a whole is, is the next chapter in the book. But um, I, I think it applies to us as well in that if we allow ourselves to get wrapped up in the identity of our government and our nation rather than the identity of our nation of our forefathers, Abraham, Moses, you know, the, these are the forefathers of our faith. That is the nation with which I most identify. Um, so I think we, we can all get wrapped up in there, but I, I agree with you. I do think people will wield power where they can and power right now is in social mobs or social groups and public outcry and ultimately then politicians as well. And like, I just want to clarify, like, it's not bad for Christians to be involved in government or push for things sure. in government. But I, obviously yeah. the, the point being that government isn't our, like, idol or something. It should not be, right? Yeah. There should be no other gods before me. And I, I think um, the example my dad said when I was talking to him about Sunday school, he's like, you should give the example of how your emotions naturally react when you hear people saying something um, that is against God versus how did you feel when someone takes a knee during the national anthem? Like, what's your reaction to that? Which one's stronger? And it's not that one thing inherently is necessarily bad, but it speaks perhaps to your identity um, and where your identity is itself. So, um, yes, I would agree that government is in and of itself not a bad thing. We are blessed. God has set up defined structure for the nation of Israel, and we see the benefits of, of government as well, and it is not sinful in and of itself. But I think more of the purpose of what I say is that perhaps what we struggle with more as a church is not so much um, some of these other things as maybe perhaps the elevation of priority of, of government or national ideas. I know we had a couple hands up over here. Um, we, had, we had Steve and then we had uh, Gerald. I'm not sure if uh, the book addresses this, but going back to the, some of the figures in the past that influenced our modern views of, in society, I think one of the individuals is a man named Desiderius Erasmus, which was a contemporary of Martin Luther. And uh, for those that don't know, he, he was kind of responsible for collecting the first kind of critical Greek New Testament. He's like a humanist scholar. but. He's attributed to a phrase, I might butcher the Latin phrase, but I think it's called ad fontes, which I think means go to the source. And he was very critical that most clergy of the day were, they just learned by tradition what was taught to them by prior generations. So he coined the phrase, you got to go to the source, which in the Christian context at that time was, you know, the scripture. But I think that idea kind of branched into different areas. So like, Next generation, you have like Shakespeare had coined a phrase to your own self be true. And so that focus was, well, me as an individual, what I believe, I need to find out who I am. And that's who I need and live that way. And that does. And so you have like further generations down, like when you get into the 1800s, you have men like uh, Frederick Schleiermacher, who coined a phrase that the Christian is one that 
they have this sense of absolute dependence on God, and that's the only real definition of Christian, which I think is, again, going back to me as the source of truth. And so when we get to our modern time, we talked about the dress of people today. Um, I, what I've, from my experience, when people dress a certain way that might be controversial or whatever, they're saying, well, I'm being authentic. I'm being true to who I am. I'm not, I'm, I'm not being fake. It's the same thing where I, I've seen also a proliferation of people using curse words in normal conversation. And I think that's a similar idea. They're saying well, I'm, I'm being authentic to myself by the way I communicate. And I'm not, you know, I'm not being conformed by external sen uh, sensors. You know, I'm not being fake. I'm not being untrue to myself. I'm being, so I'm the source. And uh, you know, whether that, you know, I've seen that the same with people that do the um, gender identity issues, identify as homosexual or transgender. I think it's the same idea. They're saying, why well, I'm being authentic to who I am. And this is where people that don't have a biblical worldview, they don't know, they're not looking to God as the source of their identity, which is what the Reformation really taught, but they look on themselves, because that's the only... Oh. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, the source of truth is yourself, or their idol is themselves. And so then they express it. Uh, my humanities professor used to say that uh, culture is religion externalized, and the religion is the self. Um, Gerald, I'm, I'll give you a chance, Gerald. Here's your shot. Right, yeah, I, I was just thinking about Ephesians 5, where it talks about that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And as I was just thinking about what you said about, you know, our, you didn't say it exactly this way, but our politics could become an idol. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think for me, politics can become a savior if I'm not careful. And I need to remember that the bigger issue is that, you know, to, to Rob Roy's point, that, that, you know, sinful man needs a savior. And, um, and I need, and ultimately my, my, uh, my uh, identity has to be representing his in interests as an ambassador here on earth. Amen. Thank you for grabbing the mic. I appreciate the wonderful way to end this. Um, let's close in prayer. Lord God, we are, we are exiles in a fallen world, and yet you have blessed us. You have chosen us, not out of our own doing, Lord, but you have chosen to allow us to be saved to come together here in Phoenix, Arizona, to create our own community, to be able to encourage and recognize each other and bless each other in our community, but a community with you as its identity, with you as its source, with your holy word as its source. I pray that you would allow us to uh, interact with the world in a way that doesn't uh, hoard away our identity, Lord, but also that we express our identity in the sense that everything should be pointing back to you and to what your son did on the cross. I pray you bless our service today. May it, um, may it go well. May it go um, with joyful worship to you, Lord. I pray it is a time of glory given to you, a time of focus and attention to you and not on ourselves or the things of the day. To you be all glory. In your son's name we pray. Amen.